Colin Palatial, UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I am Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along tonight as we kick back and talk about the world of sports for the next 60 minutes. And the more and more I get into this Browns regime, the more and more I want to resign my membership in the Browns fan club. But I'll get into that in just a little bit. You can participate in tonight's show simply by joining us here at UltimateSportsTalk.com by going into the chat room. You can also give us an email at dmitch at UltimateSportsTalk.com or send us a tweet. My Twitter address is at OHBBCoHost. That's OHBBCoHost. Tonight, we've got a great interview for you. We're going to be talking with one of the writers here at UltimateSportsTalk.com, John Hartsmark, and we're going to be talking about the National Hockey League playoffs. And if you have not been seeing what's going on in the NHL playoffs, believe me, you're missing some great action, especially in two series that we're going to highlight tonight with John, the Columbus-Pittsburgh series and the St. Louis-Chicago series. But all that's coming up in just a little bit. We also want to talk a little bit tonight about instant replay. It's hit another snag in the game of baseball. And does Pintar really give a pitcher an advantage? Well, according to Michael Pineda, it seems that it has because he's out for 10 games. Usually tonight would be the NFL draft, but thanks to Roger Goodell and his constant marketing, it's in two weeks. The NFL schedule is out, and boy, is it a hard one for the Cleveland Browns. There are some surprises so far in the NFL playoffs. And, as I said, we're going to talk NHL playoffs with John Hartsmark here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. All that plus more on the show. But first... As I said at the top of the show, the more I get into what's going on with this new Browns regime of Jimmy Haslam and Ray Farmer and Alex Shiner, the president of the club, I just have to kick back and wonder, what in the world are they thinking? Why is it every owner that comes to Cleveland, and I've thought this for years, every owner that comes into Cleveland and owns a franchise the minute they set foot in the city limits of Cleveland, Ohio, they suddenly get stupid. I just don't understand it. I woke up this morning and I thought I was back in 1993 seeing Art Modell and Bill Belichick cut Bernie Kosar all over again. Because it's happened all over again. I don't know about you, but watching the Browns in preseason is not about watching the young players. It's not about watching the old players. It was watching Bernie Kosar with Jim Donovan in the television booth every night the Browns played a preseason game, all four of them, pick apart defenses and telling you where that play should be going. That was the highlight of watching preseason games. But now WKYC and the Browns have totally devoid us of that pleasure and brought in Hey, Solomon Wilcots, Mr. Joe Haddon himself. Yes, it's Hayden, but Wilcox constantly calls him Haddon. Why in the world they ever thought they could make this change and pacify Browns fans is beyond me. Again, it just goes to show you that the Browns management just has absolutely no concept of what's going on here. And if I had a chance to vote on Issue 7... Now, after this, which is basically just telling Browns fans that we're going to continue the syntax so we can pay for all these new fangled gadgets at First Energy Stadium, I'd vote no on it. I would absolutely vote no on it. Forget it. Kozar's been removed as color commentator for Cleveland's preseason games by the club. The Browns said Wednesday night, and don't think for one second this announcement was not calculated with Johnny Manziel 
being in town in Cleveland, and that would dominate the headline scene in Cleveland. Of course it had something to do with that. Kozar contends he's been removed because of slurred speech. He attributes to a direct result of the many concussions he received while playing in the NFL. Kozar said in a statement this morning, it's very unfortunate. As I believe my football acumen and ability to describe what is happening on the field has been well received by Cleveland Browns fans. He's absolutely right. I loved listening to Bernie tear apart defenses during preseason games. Kozar estimates he's had more than a dozen documented concussions. He's been in pain for more than a decade, but he said last year he found some relief through treatments at a wellness facility in Florida. He was also picked up for drunk driving last September. Come to find out, he wasn't drinking and driving. It had to do with the concussion syndrome. In announcing their decision, the Browns said they were in discussions with Kozar about potential new roles on pregame telecasts and on the team's websites. Well, let me ask you a question. No names, please. There is an announcer that's on the Browns pregame show that the Browns evidently don't seem to care that he's the face of the franchise, but he's a convicted drunk and wife beater. And yet he's still on the show. They haven't gotten rid of him. So obviously this has something to do with the incident last year against the St. Louis Rams that Jeff Fisher was all up in arms about. Let's take you back to last August, August 2nd to be exact, when Bernie Kosar made this comment about watching Kellen Clemens in the fourth quarter of the Browns game against the St. Louis Rams, exhibition style. Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I have to watch him the whole fourth quarter. And so did we. And the only thing that made it enjoyable was listening to Bernie tell us what was going to happen during those plays. That's what got the Browns up in arms. But here we go again. As I said on Facebook this morning, Jeff Fisher got the hair on the back of his neck riled up over that comment over Kellen Clemens. When did Jeff Fisher begin running the Browns organization, folks? What has Jeff Fisher ever done in the NFL that has amounted to anything when he didn't have Steve McNair as his quarterback? He spent 20 years in Tennessee, took them to one Super Bowl under Steve McNair, and yes, lost in the last eight seconds of the game. But what else has he done during that time? Tennessee finally got smart and dispatched him. So then St. Louis came in and picked him up. What's he done at St. Louis? He's had numerous draft choices, had a chance to get RG3 passed that up. And what has he won in the NFL other than one season going to the Super Bowl? But yet everybody thinks Jeff Fisher is the testament of integrity. Same thing about Jimmy Haslam with the Browns. Everybody thinks he's a walking integrity machine. Well, they're going to pick on Bernie Kosar and kick him out of the booth for that comment when Jimmy Haslam himself is under federal investigation by the FBI for committing fraud on hundreds of different trucking companies as head of Pilot Flying J. This is the NFL hypocrisy at its best. Obviously, this is something that the Browns wanted to shed themselves of. They don't care about the fans. All they care about, bottom line, money. That's all they care about. That's all Haslam cares about. Haslam doesn't care about the fans of Cleveland. He doesn't care about the Browns. He's in it because he's got a billion-dollar investment in this team, and he wants it returned as quickly as possible. That is what Jimmy Haslam wants, and he wants you the fans, to foot the bill for this. But I think he's made a very uncalculated mistake here. Art Modell knew two hours after he dropped Bernie off the team that he had made a mistake. So did Belichick. It was a mistake. They thoroughly admit it to this day. But Jimmy Haslam doesn't live in Cleveland. lives in Tennessee. Probably a neighbor to Kirk Herbstreit, but that's another story. So what is Jimmy Haslam going to do about this? Absolutely nothing. 
He could care less. His mind is focused on the FBI investigation. His mind is also focused on the draft, which we're going to get into in just a little bit. But for right now, the NFL schedule came out this weekend. Actually, last night. We knew the opponents for every NFL team way back in January. It's, it's set up every year. Every opponent is determined by a strict, simple formula, so it's hard to say any team was unfairly treated when it comes to determining what teams they face. But when you look at the schedules, especially the Browns' schedule, it's extremely interesting. Now, when they set up these schedules, six of your games are scheduled against division opponents, and eight more are based on a simple rotation of out-of-division games. The final two games are against conference teams that finished in the same position. So a first-place team like the New England Patriots face other first-place teams like the Indianapolis Colts and the Cincinnati Bengals. Now, some teams can be slighted when it comes to how the schedule is laid out. Now, let's talk about the Browns' schedule. Then we'll get into the total NFL schedule coming up here in just a moment. The Browns are going to open up for the first time since they returned to the league on the road, and they're going to be in Pittsburgh to face the Steelers. Well, that's fine. I understand that. That I don't have a problem with opening with the Steelers. I don't have a problem with opening on the road. But then the next two games are against the New Orleans Saints in Cleveland and the Baltimore Ravens in Cleveland. Then the Browns go on a bye week. Week four is a bye week. There's no need for a bye at week four. You're just getting into the rotation of playing every week. And then all of a sudden you've got a bye week? This is ridiculous. So then what happens? The Browns then, after that bye week... They come back on October 5th, and they play at Tennessee. Then, the next week, October 12th, my mother's birthday, by the way. Happy birthday, Mom. They will face again the Pittsburgh Steelers. So they will be done with the Steelers by week six of the season. Steelers, done, over with. Then comes a trip to Florida to face the Jaguars. We play the Jaguars every year. We play the Raiders every year, and they're the next week on October 26th, this time in Cleveland. Then Tampa Bay comes to town on November 2nd. Then the Browns get back into the divisional schedule when they play at Cincinnati. Then comes Houston, at Atlanta, at Buffalo, and then comes the month of December, which is supposed to be the time that you play divisional foes. But in this case, the Browns only have two divisional rivals left to play, the Bengals and the Ravens, and they'll play them in the month of December. They also play the Colts and the Panthers. So the Browns have two division games in December, and then they play two divisional winners from a year ago in the month of December. So all total, the Browns will be facing four playoff teams from last year, and they'll face seven playoff teams from the last two years. I think this schedule is brutal for the Browns. It really is. Is. And like I said, some teams can be slighted when it comes to how the schedule is laid out. No one wants to go on the road for three straight games. Coaches want to avoid as many short weeks as possible, and they hate the Thursday night games, which the NFL loves. So when the NFL tells you they are concerned about player safety, concussions, and everything else, don't believe them. They're concerned, again, about the bottom line, money. Roger Goodell wants the most money possible. That's what he wants. That's why they've increased the Thursday night schedule. Players hate it. Owners love it. TV networks love it. And now CBS is in the mix. And teams love to have their bye weeks in the middle of the year, not on week four. Let's take a look at the rest of the NFL schedule with CBS Sports' Pat Kerwin. First thing I ask is, who's playing the NFC West? Those guys were 42-22, and 22, best record in the NFL last year, and they were 24-8 and eight in the home. That, unfortunately, falls to the AFC West. You've got to play these guys. That is the first area that I think the schedule is pretty tough. Go look at some of the teams and who they have to play. A team like San Diego, and I'm going to talk a lot about them in a minute, they've got to go to San Francisco and go to Seattle. It's a brutal, brutal situation. I'll stick with San Diego because they become the team, I think, has the worst schedule in the NFL. They have three games, West Coast to East Coast, at 1 o'clock. 
It's going to be Buffalo, Miami, and Baltimore. So add that to the problems that San Diego has. Plus, they have a Thursday night game on the road in Denver, four days after a division game with Kansas City. That's lousy. And they also have two games against teams coming off by. And both of those teams happen to be from their division, Kansas City and Oakland. Other things that strike me about this schedule that I think are important, night games. Coaches hate them. It gets you off your schedule. We have nine teams playing multiple five uh, night games each, but a bunch of these teams are playing three road night games. It'll be devastating to their preparation for the weeks afterwards. Chicago, Dallas, Indy, New England, New Orleans, the Giants in Pittsburgh, three night road games and five in total. Don't like that one bit. And then the other question that I looked at and said, this is a bad deal. How many teams have three back-to-back -back road games, and there's four of them? Tampa Bay, back-to-back -back three times. Atlanta, Pittsburgh, New Orleans, and those are two division games with the Steelers in between them. St. Louis is another team that's going to be on the road three straight weeks. Kansas City, San Francisco, Arizona. The Bengals go out on the road for three straight weeks. New Orleans, Houston, Tampa Bay, and then the Denver Broncos. They're on the road three straight weeks with the Patriots, Raiders, and St. Louis. I don't like when teams are on the road three straight weeks. I don't like five night games. And I certainly wouldn't want to be playing the, AF, the NFC West. This schedule, at least for the Browns, and I understand the Raiders are upset about their schedule too. They just can't figure out why they got such a tough schedule. And I'll have to look that schedule up and take a look at it. They don't understand what's going on either. But the NFL, as I've said, is a money-making machine. That's all they care about. That's all Roger Goodell carries, cares about. Now, he is interested in adding two more teams to the NFL playoff system. And I understand that the Players Association is going to listen because it will increase the salary cap for every team in the league, which means increased salary cap, Increase salaries for the players. I understand that. But again, the NFL comes out and says that they are concerned about head injuries. And they are concerned about overall player safety. They're not. Don't let them kid you for a second. They could care less. Certainly they want to stay away from lawsuits. That's their biggest fear, is a lawsuit that is going to cost them money down the road. They still are waiting for a judge to actually collaborate on the settlement that they have with the retired players and the concussion syndrome. They're still waiting for that. When that is going to come down, nobody knows. Nonetheless, we are looking at a system right now that is just based on money. And as I said earlier tonight, we're going to get into this in just a little bit. Because we're going to get into the NHL playoffs here with John Hartsmark in just a moment. But we're going to look at the NFL draft. Years past tonight was the NFL draft. But Roger Goodell and the major marketing machine that you've got in the NFL wanted to push the draft back into May so that they could continue this marketing machine into the month of May. And that's why the draft was pushed back for two weeks, which means... We're going to be talking about who's the best quarterback. Is it Bridgewater, Menzel, or Bortles? Who's going to be the number one pick? Is Khalil Mack going to be the second Mid-American Conference player to be the number one pick? We're going to talk about all that coming up in just a little bit. And before we get to that, we do want to tell you that there are a couple of games to watch for as far as the schedule is concerned, especially the opening night of the season. That'll be the doubleheader for the NFL on Monday night when the New York Giants will play at Detroit and San Diego Hello? will play at Arizona. But that's for the NFL. That's coming up in September. Right now what's going on is the National Hockey League and the playoffs. And boy, if you have not had an opportunity to watch some of the playoffs going on here lately, you're missing a great show that the NHL is putting on this year. And I've always wanted to have an opportunity to talk hockey on the radio, and tonight we're going to get that opportunity with former assistant hockey coach at Bradley University and now a writer here at Ultimate Sports Talk, 
com. John Hartsmark. John, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you doing? Hello? John, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Great. John, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. We're going to get an opportunity to uh, talk about the NHL playoffs here with you tonight. And I guess the first question that I want to... I guess that, well, can you hear me okay? A little bit. Okay. All right. Tell me your feelings so far on the first few games of the National Hockey League playoffs. Can you repeat the question? You're breaking up. You're cutting in and out. I said, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts so far on the first few games of the I'll NHL hear, playoffs? Okay. Mm-hmm. Evidently, we're having a problem with... John hearing us on the air, and that's what happens when you get in involved with live radio. If you've had the opportunity, there's a couple of good series going on right now in the NHL playoffs. One, of course, the St. Louis Blues and the Chicago Blackhawks. And then also what we've got going on is the Columbus Blue Jackets ah, against the Pittsburgh Penguins. The that's Blue going Jackets. on. And uh, I'm sorry, we, John, are you there? Yeah, I can barely hear you. You're cutting in and out. I only get a little bit of what you're what you're saying. Okay, well, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on the NHL playoffs so far. Hello? Hello? Well, we're having a tough time reaching John here this evening. Hello? Hello, Johnny, can you hear me? Okay, we're going to have to cut this short. We're not going to be able to talk to John tonight. Evidently, we've got some technical difficulties here. Um, but anyway, let's go over and have an opportunity to chat about this and just tell you what's happening in the NHL playoffs. So far, these two series that we've got going on so far that I've been keeping a close eye on is St. Louis and Chicago. Now, that series is tied up at two games each. And last night, Chicago came back from that 0-2 deficit and won the game last night 4-3 to over St. Louis. And over time, we're going to try this one more time. John, can you hear me this time? Perfect. Perfect. Here we go. Great. All right. John, tell me a little bit about uh, your thoughts so far on the NHL playoffs. I'm actually really impressed with the new format. Um, I was really skeptical going in because, um, you know, 1 through 8 is always interesting but the way that it's doing doing it now with the with the pods, it's creating almost this um, very entertaining chaos in, in terms that any team can win any given night. Um, highly entertaining hockey, and it's it's really up in the air. I mean, everyone looks solid. Um, there are a couple teams that are a little bit better than others, and um, I think it's just it's been fun fun as a fan and as a sports writer just you never know what you're gonna what you're gonna see i think one of the most entertaining series so far there's two of them but let's let's mm-hmm. focus one on st louis and the blackhawks what yeah. are your thoughts about That's... that series st louis jumped out two nothing and now chicago has come back and tied that series up two two i mean it's a great series i actually was at game three last night and um it's Though this series is a lot of fun because it's one of these rivalry series. I mean, these two teams do not like each other. And I actually think that the hockey has gotten better. You know, the first games in St. Louis, it was just this, it was almost um, a 1970s series, which is everyone trying to see who could injure the other team. But now, you know, someone sent a message saying, you know, you got to play hockey. And it's just really interesting that um, St. Louis jumped out with great, dictating the pace and um, really playing Ken Hitchcock, St. Louis Blues-style hockey. And now um, St. Louis still seems to not be able to find that that moment to just get the next step. Last year they were up 2-0 on Los Angeles and then lost four straight. This year they're, they're up 2-0 and have lost two in a row. Um, and it makes Game 3 just that much critic- more critical. Um, uh, Ryan Miller, you can't really fault him. He's been playing uh, really solid as a solid in goal. I think he could do a little bit better, but um, I think, you know, TJ Oshie and um, and uh, a couple of their scorers other than Tarasenko, I think Steve needs to get a little bit better. And um, 
I think it's one of the more entertaining series. Well, it's kind of come down now to, I guess, the best two out of three to finish yeah, that out. Who do you think is going to be? Yeah. Who do you think is going to be the one that pulls this out? Um, you know, taking off my Blackhawks fan hat, um, I think <laughs> the Blackhawks have the have the mojo right now. I think the fact that they just they show their depth. Um, even their fourth line with Kruger, Bolig, and Ben Smith was able to get some chances, even in overtime. So I think they have the little bit of an edge. I think they can steal one at home, um, on the road. And I just, I think, um, the Blues are good, but their lack of third and fourth line depth is, might hurt them in the long run. We're going to come back to the Western Conference. Let's switch over to the Eastern Conference real quick, John. And okay. One, uh, series that I've been keeping close eye on has been Columbus and Pittsburgh. Four games, they're tied up at two games apiece. All yeah. four games have ended up four to three. And I've been thinking, uh, Columbus, I think, has overall, if you look at their entire body of work, John, I think Columbus has outplayed Pittsburgh, but Pittsburgh just has more talent on the ice, and they can put together a four- or five-minute spurt and beat Columbus. What's your feeling about this series? I completely agree with that statement. It's um um I think that's been the most entertaining series. It's just been this freaky series. Um and it's true, Pittsburgh on paper has more talent than Columbus. But Columbus, they are a machine. They execute so well. Four checking, back checking, breakout, power play, penalty kill. Um they 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 can attack as well. I mean Dubinsky is great. Ryan Johansson's come out of nowhere this season. Jack Johnson's a great offensive defenseman. Um, what's really going to be interesting going forward is Pittsburgh's goaltending. Fleury has always given up some softy goals, even in the World Juniors uh, against the United States. He gave up um, a goal trying to play the puck up the middle, bounced off a defenseman and went in, and that was you know the difference in the game. Um, you know they don't have Thomas Falcon. He has a blood clot. He's not healthy to play. They did recall him, but he's sort of a practice player. Um, Columbus, if they keep executing the way that they are doing and just, you know, keep playing Columbus Blue Jacket hockey, you know, blue collar, you know, executing and just, you know, trying to find those little spaces, I really think they can pull an upset because I think eventually Pittsburgh is going to realize that, you know, our confidence might be shot if we can't get our big guys, you know, Malkin, Neal and uh, Crosby going because they haven't, you know, really done anything offensively. John, I'm glad you brought up Flurry because on the second goal that Columbus scored last night in that second period of play, it was really a critical error that Flurry made coming out of the crease and and going out yes. and getting the puck, and he just couldn't get back in the net in time. I agree. Um, my first year at Bradley, I was a goalie coach, and I always told my goalies, if you leave the crease, you have to be 100 percent certain that you're going to get the puck. Now, one, Fleury shouldn't, shouldn't have done it. They, they actually had two or three guys back. Second, when he played it, he just played it nonchalantly. Yes, it took a bad hop, but most goalies, if they know it's going to be near the boards on the rim, the, the rim runner around the, around the net, they play the boards. They hug their uh, pads and their body to the, to the board so it doesn't get passed. And that's a big error. Um, I, don't, um, I don't care who you are, that's huge. The big bounce, it goes right to Dubinsky, open net, and then, you know, it leads to his confidence is shot. Look at the goal he gave up in OT. I think it could be a major turning point in the series if uh, Fleury can't rebound. I mean, it's it's been, we saw it last year. There's two other series that are going on in the Eastern Conference currently, mm-hmm. John. Uh, from the original six, matter of fact, yeah. Boston and Detroit. You would think that yeah. this one would have a lot more headlines than it's gotten, but Boston up two to one. Detroit's really, I think, getting old in the tooth. What do you think? I agree, and also they've had just really bad injury luck. But if you look at who's been injured, it's, it's like what you're saying. That's uh, age. You know, Zetterberg is still getting up there. I mean, yes, when he's healthy, he can play. Dasu's been banged up. Franzen's been banged up. Howard's even been banged up this whole uh, at times this year. Um, I think that the lack of them having both Zetterberg and Datsuk unfortunately takes away from how entertaining the series has been. 
Um, you know, you've got great goalie play on, on both ends. You know, Howard's been solid. You know, he stole the first game one nothing. Um, Detroit, they need to get their other guys going. You know, Nyquist, you had that stretch where he was just scoring at will. And he's been, you know, just non-existent. And I know that uh, Babcock even said that he needs to get going. Um, yeah, it's amazing also that they haven't played, you know, I think since the 50s. Um, I think 57 was the last time these two teams met in the playoffs. It's amazing that these two original sixes haven't met. But then again, they've been in different conferences. But it's been a highly entertaining series. To me, the key for Boston is Chara. Um, we saw last year that as the, as the Stanley Cup uh, final or Stanley Cup playoffs went on, he got tired. And can he still maintain playing 20 to 25 minutes? at his age, and still be effective. Because, you know, he's just taller than everybody. He's got the length to, uh, you know, poke check and has that great shot. So if they want to continue, he's got to get a little better. But, I mean, Boston and Detroit, it's been a great series. And then you've got the Rangers and the Flyers, which has really been a tale of two different teams in the same season. Hasn't it been, John? The Rangers started out slow, and they've really come on towards the end of the year. The Flyers had a great season and then tailed off, and they seem to be just kind of limping into the playoffs. Oh, I completely agree. And it's, it, it, I mean, you look at the complete culture change. Tortorella is not Elaine Vigneault and vice versa. And once they figured out the the defensive zone uh, play and the system, they started clicking. I know they started slow, but they're looking great. And Philly, yeah, they started well, and then they had, um, you know, Peter Laviolette got fired. Craig Berube comes in, and he is a defensive-minded coach, which is different than Laviolette. And, yeah, they limped in. Um, they wanted to make the playoffs. They did. And then Mason got hurt towards the end. He'll start their, uh, in game four. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting series. They're both two even different teams. And, you know, if the Rangers can keep going, their power play at times has just been lethal. Um, they got the two two goals on the four minute major um, with the high sticking on Hagelin. They they've got they've executed. St. Louis and Richards look great together again when they had their run had their run uh, back in the day of the Stanley Cup. That's a great series. It really comes down to goaltending for Philly. I, I mean, it sounds like a broken record every single year. You know, you've got <laughs> Philly with a different goalie, whether it's Michael Layton, Brian Boucher. Ramry, Sergei Bobrovsky. It's it's really goaltending, and if Mason can come back and play the way he has, it could be a very interesting series. Rangers up in that one, two to one, and then the yes. Canadians disposed of Tampa Bay rather easily. Why, how were yes. they able to do that? Um, I really think it was the way that they were able to have their defensemen uh, play great defense, mesh that together. Um, and then also their defense helping up on the rush. Suvan and Yemelin and Markov are great in both the offensive end and defensive end. But the biggest key was Carey Price. Um, he has he had another great season. He was great with Canada in the Olympics. He was just focused. He never over-pursued like he sometimes does. He never had anything weird happen to him. He just seemed to be in the zone. And that just alleviated a lot of the stress of the Canadians, and they just were able to free flow. Um, another thing was Tampa Bay didn't have their starting goalie. Ben Bishop um, might be a Vesna candidate, and he was amazing. And then he um, had an injury. He's now having surgery on it. He's going to be out three to four months. And Anders Lindback was not the guy. He He's an interesting goalie in that he's big. He loves to play a butterfly, and when he gets down, he's small. He doesn't take up the net. And um, Tampa also has a lack of depth. They're solid. They've got two Calder finalists in uh, Palat and Johnson, and then Stamkos. But other than that, they really didn't have much. So sort of Montreal gaining fire and Tampa Bay not having much. We're talking with John Hartsmark, former assistant hockey coach at Bradley University and now a writer here at Ultimate Sports Talk. John, back to the Western Conference I thought a series that was going to be a lot better than it actually has been was San Jose and the L.A. Kings. What has San Jose been able to do that the Kings just have not been able to stop? 
Um, San Jose has just executed what Tom McClellan has been wanting to do. I think they're playing with a chip on their shoulder. They're out to prove that, um, that, uh, that they, that they belong, that they're a cup contender. And I think that they've just decided, you know what? We know what LA is going to do. We see them all the time and we're just going to execute the way that we can. And the, the lines that they have, the fact that Logan Couture and Joel Pavelski don't play on the top line just shows that they have great offensive depth and people have just been stepping up. They're playing amazing. I mean, 13 goals in two games is just unheard of in the playoffs. I want to get into the Anaheim-Dallas series, too. That's tied up at, at two apiece. What's your thoughts on that series so far? Um, what I find amazing is that Jonas Hiller, a guy who never seems to get enough credit for what he's doing, is the backup. Frederick Anderson seems to be the guy. And Anaheim, um, last night lost. I think Getzlaff didn't play. He's day-to-day after taking, you know, the puck to the face. Um, it's another one where Dallas got hot late, and um, they've gotten a couple of guys to step up, and they've made it interesting. I still think Anaheim is one of those where they just have too much depth. Um, and I think they're going to be uh, just a better team, and I think they'll ultimately, ultimately win it. Um, but I think Dallas is starting to make it interesting. Lindy Ruff is another great coach. You know, did really well with Buffalo before they had to go through the huge rebuilding. Um, it could be very interesting with Dallas, but Anaheim, I just think, is better. And, John, is Colorado just toying with the Wild? I would love to think so. Um, it's just been, it's another one of those wacky series. I mean, you know, Ilya Briskolov shows that he's good, but not what he used to be. Darcy Kemper comes out of nowhere. Their other two backups have been injured all year and they have nothing to lose. Um, Colorado wants to prove that their regular season was not a fluke. And I just think that eventually you're going to, Colorado can do it, but Minnesota, they just are going to say, we don't want to go down without a fight. And um, I hope they're toying with them because I honestly think Chicago, Colorado will be a fantastic series, but um, you never know with the way the playoffs are going now. Well, the general consensus is, John, that it will be Chicago and probably Boston for the Stanley Cup. Do you feel that way or do you have any other ideas? Um, I feel confident in Boston. I mean, the way that they've been playing is just fantastic. Chicago, um, I'd love to say that. Um, if they continue the way that they're playing, their big problem this whole year was consistency. Um, they always played well against the good teams, and then it seemed to let down when they played the Winnipeg's, Toronto's, and Edmonton's of the league. Um, they obviously can. They're almost the same as they were last year when they won the whole thing. And... Um, and I'd love to say that a team to watch out for is uh, is Anaheim um, and also San Jose. Those two teams, if they continue the way that they can, I think they could make it. But right now, um, I think a safe, not the safe pick, but the one that a lot of people are thinking would be Chicago-Boston. But the Western Conference, I think, is going to play out very, very interestingly. We're talking with John Hartsmark. Just a couple of more questions, John, before we let you go yeah. tonight. Being a a former assistant coach at Bradley University, I want to ask you about Union College, who came really out of nowhere to win the NCAA Men's Hockey Tournament yes. just about a month ago over Minnesota. Where did this school come from, and how did they do it? It's true. I mean, what's interesting is in Division One college, a lot of teams are Division Three. You know, Clarkson and um, the other colleges, Vermont, they're really – Hockey is the division, their only division one sport. Union, they don't give any scholarships. You know, they only have 2,200 kids and they can, they can't keep the D3 model. They have one NHL draft pick in Shane Gothis there, who's going to be playing for the Flyers soon. And Rick Barnett just, you know, said, hey, why not us? And they made the Frozen Four when um, Matt Bodie was a freshman. Um, they said that at the time they were young, they were just happy to be there. And, uh, you know, the one thing I saw when I watched Union play was they're similar to Columbus in the terms of execution. They're just a machine. They, they don't have the best talent. If you looked at it, Minnesota, top to bottom, had 
amazing NHL talent, mm-hmm. and they just executed every phase. They were in the top four in both offense and defense. And it was one of those where all of that seemed to fall into place. They didn't have the greatest goalie, but they, they shocked the world. They really did. Um, I won't call them a Cinderella because they were uh, one of the one seeds, but a surprise, oh, God, yes. Yeah, yeah, they definitely were. John, quickly, what do you think the NHL is going to do about Olympic hockey coming up in 2018? Are the NHL players still going to be involved, or are they going to do something about that? Um, I think before Jonathan John Tavares went down, I really think that they wanted to continue using NHL talent. I think that they really liked um, the ratings. They really liked um, the product that was getting out. They always loved the top guys going against each other. Um, I still think they'll probably do a couple more years, but I think the contingent, the um, the GMs are going to at least want something to happen, you know, some sort of you know financial help if one of their players goes down. Um, you know, I loved the Olympics. I thought it was great. I thought every game was very interesting. You had great storylines. Christers, Gudelvakis of Last year with 58 saves out of 60 shots to almost surprise Canada. Um, the USA-Canada game was another amazing game. Mm-hmm. Russia bowing out. You know, you saw Putin just crumble because <laughs> everyone was saying, if we didn't win gold in hockey, it's a failed Olympics. Um, so I think, ultimately, the money involved for the NHL by having their players go, the storylines that come with it, and I think, ultimately, the fans like it. I think they'll be there for at least a couple more years, but I think you'll start seeing more and more people wanting amateur athletes um, wanting to play, which, if that were, is the case, look out for the United States. Their their junior programs have been fantastic, and um, Canadian youth hockey has been in the decl- a steady decline. They'll still have top talent, but will they have enough to compete with um, the Swedes, the Russians, the Finns, and the United States. John, could there be a compromise where they move the hockey to the Summer Olympics? Um, I think there could. Um, I think it would be really interesting, you know, hockey in June. Now, then again, I wouldn't mind it. Um, I think that could work. Um, you know, uh, that's uh, something that has been thrown around. Uh, but I think right now the big talk is what's going to happen if one of our players goes down like Tavares. Um, Because Garth Snow just, you know, he usually speaks his mind, and he spoke his when Tavares was down. You know, what am I supposed to say to my season ticket holders? Um, Mm -hmm. I would be be for that, but then you might have potential injury problems with some of the top guys, you know, the Duncan Keiths, the Crosbys, the Malkins, the Ovechkins, by playing so much hockey, but if it's once every four years, um, I think if that's what it came down to, every hockey player loves putting on their country's colors. John, can we get you on in another three weeks when the Stanley Cup starts? Would love to do it. Love to do it. All right, we'll preview that one when it gets right down to the final two. John Hartspark, thanks for being a guest tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Had a great time. Our thanks to John Hartsmark again tonight for talking about the NHL playoffs. But the NBA playoffs are getting into full swing with those first-round games continuing on and on. And let's take a look at what's happening there. First of all, in the Eastern Conference, Brooklyn and Toronto, they're tied at one game apiece. They'll be playing Game 3 tomorrow night. Washington and Chicago will be playing this evening. But Washington has a 2 nothing lead in that series, and they're going home. Miami, of course, is leading over Charlotte 2-0. The Heat looking for their third straight championship. And Indiana and Atlanta. Atlanta came away with a surprise Game 1 victory in Indianapolis. But the Pacers came back and won Game 2, so that series is tied up at one game apiece. Now that series, Game 3, will be tonight. Also tonight in the Western Conference, two Game 3s. 
Oklahoma City will be going to Memphis, and the Clippers will be in Golden State. All three of those series are tied at one game apiece. Now, also in the Western Conference, last night, San Antonio fell to Dallas, so that series is tied at one game apiece. And Portland has a 2 nothing lead over Houston. Where is Dwight Howard, folks? Superman evidently fell on his kryptonite over the last two games against Portland. And the Trailblazers have a 2 nothing lead going home tomorrow night for Game 3. But there's a lot of coaching news coming out of the NBA over the last few days. Of course, the New York Knicks and Phil Jackson made their first move when they fired Mike Woodson on Monday. Then Rick Adelman surprised almost everyone and stepped down as head coach of the Minnesota Timberwolves. As he said, he wanted to retire. 23 years as a head coach. Rick Adelman has been one of the most successful head coaches in the NBA without a world championship. Utah announced that Tyrone Corbin would not be coming back, and of course Detroit has been dealing with an interim head coach for the last two months. But what a lot of people thought was interesting was the fact that there could be some possible changes in some playoff teams if they don't get out of the first round. NBA insider Bill Simmons of ESPN said earlier this week that he thought that Golden State, if they didn't get out of the first round series with the L.A. Clippers, could be jettisoning Mark Jackson because one of their key consultants, Jerry West, is not enamored with the way Jackson handles the club. Houston also could be getting rid of Kevin McHale should they not get past their first round series with Portland. And Indiana may be getting rid of their head coach also if they don't get past the Atlanta Hawks, which would lead me to believe, first of all, that Larry Bird would give his old friend Kevin McHale a call if Houston did get rid of McHale and bring him into Indiana because those big guys with the Pacers could use some coaching that only Kevin McHale could probably give them. Now, who's in the running for the Minnesota, Utah, and Detroit jobs? along with the New York Knicks. Well, of course, everybody's talking about Steve Kerr being in the running for the Knicks job. He's probably going to get that job. Minnesota's looking at going into Iowa, more specifically, Iowa State, and bringing in Fred Hoiberg. They're looking at that possibility. Of course, Hoiberg spent a lot of time with Minnesota as a player. Detroit would like to bring Tom Izzo in the head coach of Michigan State, to run their basketball operations and be head coach. And Utah? Nobody knows what's going on with Utah. And nobody knows what's happening with the L.A. Lakers. Because Mike D'Antoni, who was supposed to be the head coach at Marshall after the season ended, didn't get the job because his brother got it, Dan D'Antoni. <laughs> so he's now the head coach of the Marshall basketball program. So a lot of coaching changes could be made before the playoffs are over. And what's going on in Cleveland? We don't know yet. David Griffin held a press conference on Tuesday. He seems to be in the running for taking the interim title off of his GM name. But what happens with Mike Brown? We still don't know. That is still up in the air. Well, as I said earlier, the NFL draft is normally held tonight. We're going to swing back into football right now and take a look at what could happen in the NFL draft in just a couple of weeks. I am efforting for next week's show to have somebody from the Texas area that is enamored with Johnny Manziel. Quite frankly, as I've told you throughout the weeks, I am not in love with this guy. I am not crazy about the Browns selecting him as the quarterback for the future. I think the media members in Cleveland are enamored with Johnny Manziel just simply because he is going to bring more ink and more opportunities 
to fill the radio airwaves throughout the month. I don't think Johnny Manziel's a good fit in Cleveland. Just because he played at Texas A&M does not mean that he's a cold-weather quarterback. And I heard today that he's got big hands, and that will help during the cold weather. Quite frankly, I think big hands mean that there's just more there to get cold when it is cold. I think you've got to surround a quarterback, especially a young quarterback, with as much talent as you can. Quite frankly, as I told you last week, I like A.J. McCarron. I even like the fact that they could go after Zach Mettenberger from LSU. But whomever they get, I certainly hope, and I talked with Greg Mitchell, our producer, about this earlier this week, I hope the Browns get smart and put their rookie quarterback on the injured reserve list, no matter who it is. Mettenberger would give them the prime opportunity to do that because he's coming off the ACL surgery. But put them on the injured reserve list for the year. That way there is absolutely no temptation to play this kid early in the season or at all this year because I want my new quarterback, my rookie quarterback, whomever it is, Manziel, McCarron, Garoppolo, whomever, to sit on the sidelines for at least one year. And you know what's going to happen, folks. Brian Hoyer, if he has a bad half or a bad game, there is going to be intense pressure, especially by the media in Cleveland, to bring in a Johnny Manziel and play him. Johnny Manziel, before the year is out, folks, you know, he is going to have a radio talk show on a Monday night at a predominant bar or restaurant previewing Monday night football, whether he's the starting quarterback or not. And the Browns have to nip this stuff in the bud. But let's see who they do draft. And that's coming up in two weeks from tonight. 8 o'clock will be the first pick. Who has that first pick? It's the Houston Texans. Bill O'Brien, their new head coach. And as I look down at least the first top ten of my mock draft, I see the Texans taking Jadavian Clowney, the defensive end, out of South Carolina. I just think this kid has got too much upside and too much talent to pass at the number one pick. And you team him with J.J. Watt on that defensive line, and Houston immediately becomes a contender overnight. I'm not the only one that thinks this way. CBS Sports Jason LaCanfora says Houston could do worse than selecting Clowney. The closer we get to the draft, the more I believe they will go ahead and take Jadavion Clowney, and I would actually go ahead and urge them to take Jadavion Clowney. The only other player that, if I'm them, I would really consider there is Johnny Manziel. I'm not sure he's a mix with what Bill O'Brien wants to do at the quarterback position. If Clowney is the best in breed, if he looks like a generational player, if he is far and away the kind of freakish pass rusher, who could really change the scope of your organization, and you have the ability to pair him with J.J. Watt. And if, again, he is best in breed and you can buy him so cheap, even as the first overall pick, and pay him roughly $5 million a year and get him at that sort of discount, knowing you have a, a coach who can develop quarterbacks, knowing that this quarterback class all has some warts, knowing, again, you come right around the top of the second round and will probably have your pick of the litter of you know four or five quarterbacks who are going to go in the next 30 to 35 to 45 picks. That's not a bad situation to be sitting in either. You have the ability to make this defense infinitely better by having two real dominant edge presence. And that makes everybody else uh, a little more interchangeable. You don't have to be quite as stout interior-wise in your defensive line with those two, and they're not right now. You don't have to have an elite secondary if you have those two because you're not going to have to cover for that long because of the amount of pressure you're going to be able to generate. And let's recall – Their issues there were very much defensive in nature as well, giving up long, long drives at the end of halves, uh, getting completely blown out of games, having the the inability to get off the field on third down when they had to. Even with the J.J. Watt last year, that defense had a lot of holes in it. You can address that side of the ball, still come around and get a quarterback later. If you pass on someone like a Clowney or a Khalil Mack or or whomever you want to say is a best-in-breed player up there at first overall, you're not going to have near the same kind of value left at the top of the second round. 
that you might at the quarterback position, again, given that that's what your coach does. That's the position that he can get the most out of. The Texans are comfortable with Clowney. They spent a lot of time with him before his pro day. They've had ownership around him, coaches coaching around him. GM Rick Smith's been around him. In the end, Clowney might be the best play short of a trade. And if I'm the Texans, I go ahead and take him. And I think the Texans should take him. Which leads us to the St. Louis Rams. Of course, they got this pick from the Washington Redskins a couple of years ago in the RG3 trade. The Rams could go Sammy Watkins. They could go Khalil Mack. I doubt they'll go either one of those two. I think they're going with Greg Robinson, the offensive tackle from Auburn. He just provides stability at the left tackle spot, which is something that Sam Bradford needs coming back from the ACL surgery. Jacksonville has the third pick, and I see them taking Khalil Mack, the linebacker out of Buffalo. What a stud this kid is. And what's funny is the fact that the linebacker that the Browns want to draft in the movie Draft Day with Kevin Costner, his last name is Mack. Khalil could end up being the second Mid-American Conference player to be selected number one if the Texans decide they want to go in the linebacker direction. But I think they'll go with Clowney, and the Jaguars will go with Mack. He's just too much of a talent to turn down. And you can get more quarterbacks down at the beginning of the second round, and I think that's what Houston and Jacksonville are thinking. Which brings us to the Cleveland Browns. And what will they be doing? Will they take Johnny Manziel? I think they should go for Sammy Watkins out of Clemson. Kid's just too much of a talent. To me, there are four stud players in this draft. Clowney, Robinson, Mack, and Watkins. None of them are quarterbacks. I think you can get the same type of quarterback at 26 or 35, where the Browns will be drafting later on in the first and second round, that you can get here at number four. Same talented quarterback, whether that be Derek Carr, A.J. McCarron, or even, as Todd McShay said earlier today on ESPN, Johnny Manziel could drop like a rock all the way down to 26. If Manziel is there at 26, I'd probably take a chance on him and go with that, but not at number four. At number five is the Oakland Raiders. I see them taking Jake Matthews, the offensive tackle, out of Texas A&M. Then comes number six. That's the Atlanta Falcons. I see them coming in and taking up Taylor Luan, the offensive tackle, out of Michigan. The Falcons need some help across that front line, and I think they're going to get it with the tackle out of Michigan. Then comes number seven, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They are in dire need of a wide receiver. I see them going Mike Evans, the wide receiver out of Texas A&M, which means that there would be two players drafted from Texas A&M in the top ten, and neither one of them would be Johnny Menzel. At number eight, the Minnesota Vikings, and I see them going for Blake Bortles, the quarterback out of Central Florida. They went with Christian Ponder a couple of years ago. It hasn't worked out. They need another quarterback that they can build around, and that will be Blake Bortles. Then comes the number nine pick, the Buffalo Bills. And who do they go after? Boy, they've got a lot to pick from, but I see them going with Haha Clinton Dix, the safety out of Alabama. The Bills need safety help, and I see them going for Dix. He is a stud. And number 10, that's all we're going to do tonight, goes to the Detroit Lions, and I see them taking a cornerback out of Oklahoma State, Justin Gilbert. That's a look at what I think should happen. Now, if Manziel is there at 26 for the Browns to pick up, certainly. If not, I think they ought to go with the Hill kid from LSU as a backup running back to Ben Tate and then go for the quarterback at number 35, either Mettenberger or McCarron. I love A.J. McCarron. He is a winner, and I think he can win again in the NFL. He's my sleeper pick, A.J. McCarron from Alabama. But the draft will be held two weeks from tonight, and we'll be covering it here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Well, as we close out tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk show, let's move into baseball, where the big story this week, actually there were two of them, and it all started in New York and went all the way out to Los Angeles. Yankees right-hander Michael Pineda was suspended for 10 games by Major League Baseball today for possessing a foreign substance during Wednesday night's game against the Red Sox at Fenway Park. And you talk about the stupidity 
of what he did. They already found it on his hand. They had tape of pine tar on his hand from his last start. Then he comes out in his next start against Boston in Fenway Park and puts it on his neck. Pineda says he will accept the suspension, which is probably the smartest thing he's done over the last two days. And that will begin tonight when the Yankees and Red Sox continue their series in Boston. Pineda was ejected by home plate umpire Jerry Davis in the bottom of the second inning after Red Sox manager John Farrell asked Davis to inspect a suspicious brown substance on the right side of Pineda's neck. Now John Farrell is coming out to talk with the home plate umpire Jerry Davis. I think they're going to check Pineda. Remember, against the Red Sox, he had what looked like pine tar on his hand. They said it was dirt, but Farrell is going out to check Pineda. Now they're checking his back. And they're throwing him out of the game. He went to his neck and he said there's something on his neck, so Pineda is being tossed. Now Farrell did not check it last time when Clay Buckholtz was the opposite of the opposing pitcher. This time he does, and Pineda gets thrown out of the game. Well, Farrell adheres to the old saying, fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you, shame on you, Pineda who later admitted that he applied pine tar to his neck after allowing two runs in the bottom of the first, saying he was having difficulty controlling his pitches and that he didn't want to hit any batters. Well, I understand that. And I also understand why pitchers aren't allowed to use it, but it really does nothing to the ball. It just helps pitchers get a better grip on the baseball, especially in cold weather. So if batters are allowed to use pine tar on their bats, why aren't pitchers allowed to use it on their hands? Well, the other big story this week, Albert Pujols, the Los Angeles Angels overpaid slugging first baseman, hit his 500th career home run. And I got into a very, I guess you would call, interesting conversation on Facebook with Casey Stern from Series XM Radio this week, where Stern said that Pujols was a certain first ballot Hall of Famer. I beg to differ on that. I did ask Casey Stern to come on this show and debate me as far as that was concerned, and the text I got back from Casey Stern was, I think I'll have to pass. Okay, Casey. Here's a look at the standings after this afternoon's action in Major League Baseball. Let's take a look at the National League first. And on the National League Eastern Division scene, Atlanta leads the East with a 14-7 and record, two and a half games above the New York Mets and Washington Nationals. In the National League Central, the Milwaukee Brewers have the best record in baseball at 16-6, and and they're four and a half games above St. Louis, five games above Cincinnati. And in the National League West, it's the L.A. Dodgers leading by a game over San Francisco and a game and a half over Colorado. Now, in the American League, it is in the Central, Detroit leading the division by a game with an 11 and 8 record over Minnesota at 11 and 10 and the Indians are in third a game and a half back with an 11 and 11 record in the American League Eastern Division it's the New York Yankees winning it with a 12 and 9 mark they're a game ahead of Toronto and a game and a half ahead of Baltimore then comes Boston and Tampa Bay and in the American League's Western Division it's Texas with a 14-8 and mark, leading the division by a half a game over Oakland at 13-8. and And they're three and a half games above the Los Angeles Angels at 10-11, and Seattle in fourth place, and Houston in fifth place. Now, the Texas Rangers have won three in a row. That's the longest winning streak in the American League. And in the National League, the longest winning streak belongs to the Cincinnati Reds. They have also won three in a row. And that will do it for tonight's show. Don't forget, Mark Donahue and I on the Ohio Baseball Weekly Show talking about the Reds and the Indians on Monday night at 9 o'clock. Our thanks to John Hartsmark, a writer for UltimateSportsTalk.com, talking to us this evening on the National Hockey League playoffs. Our thanks go out to him and also to our producer, Greg Mitchell, for being a part of tonight's show. But for another week, that's going to do it for me. Thanks for joining us tonight on Ultimate Sports Talk. We'll be back with you again next Thursday night at 7 o'clock, and hopefully we're going to be talking with someone about Johnny Manziel and the NFL Draft. Until then, 
Have a good weekend. Have a good week. Enjoy everything you do. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next Thursday night at 7 o'clock. Good night, everybody.